It's Thursday, January 12th, 2023. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight we will review Letters on the Royal Art by 19th century German author J.B. Corning. Corning was a musician, a mystic, and a Freemason. The book is composed of letters describing the spiritual absorption of the symbols, words, and signs used in the three degrees of Blue Lodge masonry in the form of an internal awareness which purifies and sanctifies the whole body. This is similar to a yoga chakra system and may have had an influence on the Golden Dawn's middle pillar ritual. The book and other works by Kerning may have influenced Barden's Key to the True Kabbalah. Kerning was a singer and teaches a magical Masonic alphabet in the manner of a musical voice teacher. He is perhaps the first modern Western mystic to emphasize internalization of spiritual ritual. His concepts enable the development of bringing down the light in 20th century magic. Now, this new book, Letters on the Royal Art by Kerning, is uh, translated by Ian H. Gladwin and is sponsored and forwarded by Samuel Robinson, the founder of Penn Sofers. And uh, Samuel Robinson is an adept from Wari Ra, from the New Zealand Wari Ra Temple, which we're all familiar with from Pat Zaleski. Uh Now, anyway, this book by Kerning is very important to esoteric masonry. In fact, when we put the review on Amazon, I'm going to call it Esoteric High-Tech Freemasonry because that's what it is. But first, before we get into it, let's read a biography of J.B. Kerning so we know who we're talking about. Now, Johann Baptist Krebs, also known as Johann Baptist Kerning, was a German opera singer, opera director, vocal teacher, Freemason, and writer of esoteric books. During his lifetime, Kerning held a high reputation as did his work in the century following his death. Little attention in the last century, however, has been paid to him and his work, with the exception of a few sources. Most notable is J.B. Kerning, his life and writings, a biographical sketch, written and published by Gottfried Buckner in a few editions between 1902 and 1927. Although Buckner's work is flawed in many ways, Filled with several biased anecdotes, personal collection of primary materials belonging to both Krebs and his students offers us enough to reconstruct a stable narrative. Krebs was born to a family of poor Catholic farmers on April 12, 1774, in Uberaken, near, near Belgium, in uh, Bracatile in the southern Black Forest of Baden-Baden, between 1782 and 1792, he attended grammar school in Belgium and Constance. And his adolescent years, he studied Catholic theology at Freiburg and Breisgau. During this latter age, he traveled often to nearby Donetsk, where he was first introduced to music at the Prustenberg Royal Court. There, in 1794, he re began receiving vocal instruction. 
shortly after he was accepted as a promising young tenor into the court's choir. He remained in the royal court throughout his life, first as an elect and then as a full member of the court opera until age of 54. Between 1812 and 1818, Krebs taught students at his town in Pestalozian Music Institute, an academy that adopted methods and theory from the Swiss pedagogue and philosopher Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, 1746 and 1827. Between 1821 and 1851, Krebs was the director of the court opera, and while holding the official position of opera poet simultaneously in these years, an interest in philosophy led him to the works of German idealists Kant, Pitch, and, and von Batter, Hegel, Schnell, Schilling, Hobart, and Schopenhauer, among others. Many considered Krebs' knowledge of theology, philosophy, and Freemasonry to be both extensive and authoritative, and marked with the same intellectual curiosity and autodidact nature that he approached most things. In terms of his Masonic career, Krebs first entered the Zumwider Lodge to the Ram or to the Aries in Berlin in 1820, and in 1830s he formed his own Masonic circle in Stuttgart, writing a series of manuscripts entitled Morsi's Mittagen, Masonic Messages. In 1831, between 1831 and 1840, he published six volumes of Masonic Messages, which was a periodic brief containing Masonic insights. In 1835, he founded the Lodge Wilhelm of the Rising Sun of the Orient at Stuttgart. This lodge was accepted as the daughter lodge of the grandmother lodge to the Sun and the Orient. In Beirut, shortly after his tenure at Stuttgart, saw his consecutive election to as worshipful master, passing to only one other on a single occasion when the internal disputes saw another brother elected. Following this resolution, Krebs resumed his role in the year directly, directly following. In 1841, Krebs was made honorary member of the Grand Lodge in Beirut. And between 1841 and 1847, he took an administrative role overseeing Lodge matter across Germany. And during this time, he organized the Strasbourg Masonic Councils of 1846 and 1848. After nearly 60 years as a singer and more than 30 years as a mason, Johann Baptist Krebs passed away in October 2nd, 1851. Krebs' output was prolific. As a writer during his life, he produced dozens of volumes on Freemasonry, spirituality, religion, and mysticism, preferred to keep his anonymity, Krebs' first group, under the pseudonym J.M. Gunig and later changing his pen name to J.B. Kerning. Krebs was highly respected for his knowledge of Freemasonry and mysticism, and he generally shared this knowledge with students and friends in addition to his books. One student, Carl Klob, co-authored a book with Krebs on his teachings. Others, such as the German Freemason and philosopher and Kabbalist Franz Joseph Molotov, 1789-1860, and they exchanged letters. Their conversation through pen and paper evolved to take the form of a manuscript containing lessons outlining Krebs' method. Krebs' letters 
to Molitor or what comprised this very volume, Letters on the Royal Art. Now, because masonry is primarily ritual, and ritual is primarily vocal, when I put my review on Amazon, this book, I'm going to title it Esoteric High-Tech Masonry, because that's what it is. And I'm going to say right now, and I've already said this to Sam Robinson, that I am really not the best reviewer qualified to review this book. Actually, uh, it should be reviewed and, and will be reviewed again by my colleague and mentor, Merrick Rees-Hamer, past master and musician, and also administrator of the Los Angeles Golden Dawn Temple. And Merrick will follow up, because Merrick is a musician, he is much, much more capable of reviewing this book than I am. And uh, I've already told Sam Robinson that that uh, that Merrick agrees he's, he's going to pick it up after me. And he is fascinated by it. He hasn't had a chance to read it yet, but he's fascinated by it. So this is just the first, our first on the Hermetic Hour. This is our first round on this book. Now, I want to mention before we get into this, that this book does not involve a chakra system. This is not the Western chakra system that we recovered in Hermetic Yoga, but it, it does relate to it. But it does definitely, and you will see as we get through it here, that it definitely relates to the Golden Dawn's Middle Pillar ritual, which derives from it, whether Kerning mentions chakras or not. In fact, Kerning doesn't mention chakras at all in the letters, in the letters book. He doesn't. He doesn't mention, he does mention mentioned Buddhism in passing, and, and of course, we get into some Egyptian philosophy, but but he does not mention yoga, and he doesn't mention uh, anything about the chakras. However, he is, as far as we know, uh, he is the originator of the use of internalizing the alphabet and internalizing the ritual by the means of proprioception and synesthesia. Now, both those terms, of course, need some explaining. Proprioception is the idea of being able to feel and experience inside yourself. In other words, get down and, get down and, and, and get in your liver and, and, you know, get inside yourself. And, of course, we use it, we use it for the chakras in hermetic yoga. And, in, and, and of course, it's used in, it's used in tantric yoga as you go up and down inside yourself. And synesthesia, and some of you psychedelic people probably have heard, heard that word before, that means visualizing sound. In other words, you hear a sound and you, and you, and you see something. And that process, of course, is part of his proprioception, his internalizing. In order to give you an idea of this book, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through it and read some of it to you. And we'll discuss it. We'll discuss a little bit of what, what what we've read here. Now, if we look at the consonants according to these faculties, we we find five categories: four lip letters, four tongue letters, four palate letters, and four others remaining that are pronounced with the teeth in combination with either the lips or the tongue. Now, remember, this guy's a voice teacher. And he's an opera singer. 
And uh, the four lip letters are B, M, R, and W. The lips can produce an R as good as the tongue, and it's often used when you want to scare someone or shoo away an animal. And the fourth letter of the tongue is D, M, R, L. And these are quite common and need no explanation. And the four palate letters are G, R, and CH. Now, with this information, it's easy to see how fellow craft degree is often neglected. Many dabble with this humanitarian jargon and travels of the fellow craft in the world, but fail to open the temple by which they could attain humanity and the essence of moral law. The word banak is the real fellow craft word to which mock can be added in the third degree. In the first degree, however, the consonants were not yet spoken, so the entered apprentice had to remain with EIO among those in India. The entered apprentice pillar was designated for just the vowels and for the great old master's word that was lost to the entered apprentice in the fellow craft pillar. On the other hand, the consonants are mixed with the vowels. The three degrees that we now call St. John's degrees follow a natural sequence in this manner. Now you might ask, where does this mechanical unimaginative cognition of consonants lead? And how is it possible for something spiritual to be achieved by it? And the answer is this. If man doesn't have something within him beyond brute matter, something that he must divide and transform, then he has no immortality to gain. Oh, boy. Now, immediately, I'm going to have to qualify that in saying what he has just described is based on the Egyptian mummification principle. When the Egyptians mummified bodies, they were not mummifying them for some Hollywood uh, resurrection you know, so we could have Boris Karloff stumbling around. That was not why they did it. They were preparing a talisman to survive the whole body of the individual. They were making a talisman out of it, and that's basically what you do here. But as soon as this free inner soul stirs within him and coming to life, is able to absorb the outer eye of the human being, and it becomes as natural as drawing wine from grapes. The soul, however, must be recognized, shaped, and made active. The outer man sees, hears, feels, and speaks. The inner man of the soul must have these qualities too. Otherwise, he is no more perfect than the outer man. The almost perfect quality of this man is his speech. And, of course, this sounds like Hermes Trismegistus. The language is given to him by the soul via the spirit. And if... We're capable of making the soul speak and hear its own language. We'll have assurance of a free inner life that gradually takes us into itself and reigns over its own domain and by the means of language builds itself a new etheric body. Now, now at the bottom of this page, we have, of course, this work is difficult and arduous. But the man should not be frightened by hardships and difficulties because he knows that only through these can he rise and strengthen himself. The temple of the fellow craft 
is divided into five stages. The fellow craft divides his body into five parts. From the heels to the knees, from the knees to the hip, from the hip to the chest, and from the chest to the neck. And finally, from the neck to the crown of the head. The master mason reaches the seventh year and beyond. The periods of life for the master are one, boyhood, two, juvenile, three, manhood, anticipation of a higher goal and thirst to know it, searching outward by seeing and listening, attempting to enter into oneself, the recovery of the original state of human nature through the word of the spirit dwelling within man. And then at the bottom of the page, he says, getting to know yourself is the first lesson that the aspiring Master Mason learns, get to know yourself. I now call out the master so you can experience what it means to break free from chimerical hypothesis, dictatorial doctrines, and the compulsive schooling of pompous systems. Then you enter into the realm of your own knowledge that flows from the original source and can alone quench the thirst for truth. And you will remember that. Uh, that in the OTA we always we we start off with uh, know thyself and we end with you are God, and that Kurnik would certainly agree with that. Now let's get on to the eleventh letter here, and this is this is the Kabbalah letter, the eleventh letter. What we have seen above is the language of man consists of nine vowels and sixteen consonants regarding its essential properties or in its form, however we haven't yet spoken. Everything that exists has a proper form that determines its identity. Thus, if language is something substantial, its elements must have proper forms by which each component is identified. Yet in com composition, words are formed which receive content and substance. In accordance to the nature of the letters, to investigate a language according to its content and its meaning, Therefore, we must look into its elements and investigate their unique qualities. In ancient times, such art and knowledge was indispensable, yet is now referred to as a secret doctrine, Kabbalah, or natural philosophy. Since you know this science under the name of Kabbalah, I'll likewise use that, same, that name. The elementary teachings of the Kabbalah deal with the forms of the letters as they present themselves to the ear, the feelings and the eye. The ear is an unerring judge of the forms of the letters in that it cannot mistake one for another. No university is able to make anyone believe that a spoken F is an O, a B, or a Z. The ear is not capable of judging letters any differently. To the ear, the letters are what they are, and neither force uh, nor cleverness can convince the ear otherwise. Our feelings, then, think or imagine the letters. As soon as we have gained impartiality and let go of preconceived ideas, we can perceive movements of the mouth and the other parts of the body that convey natural forms which teach us the infallibility of feeling which, like the ear, cannot be tricked. Admittedly, our investigation of this is, is prone to increased difficulty 
since we're working subjectively and must be uh, be open to both learning and gaining command at the same time. The most difficult task is to learn the archetypes of the eye, since it is almost entirely disconnected from nature and corrupted. It could draw any shape. And we say we have written O or a B or another letter. People have been subjected to such authoritarian tendencies for so long that they no longer have an idea how nature has uh, how nature has definitive uh, stands here as well, and yet it's essential if the three faculties of hearing, feeling, and seeing are to correspond and to become mutually effective. Many scholars have dealt with this subject, but never without confining dogma, thinking as if such forms were only contained in ancient Oriental languages. In addition to pairing the form of letters to the Kabbalistic word, some are sought to establish meaning in the true Kabbalah. However, it is not found within any single language alone, nor is it based on concepts, it is based on force. And the power of the true Kabbalah is contained in the letters. And this respect merely carries forward concepts rather than demonstrating culmination of their efficacy. Uh, with the Kabbalistic word, its goal is, isn't expressed, but just means to achieve an end. Let me make a comment on that. Barden's key to the true Kabbalah, I believe Barden, Barden read this. I, 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 I believe Barden read this, this, uh, the letters very carefully because his key to the true Kabbalah uses the German alphabet, and I think he translates the Sefer, the Sefer Raziel with three-letter formulas using the German alphabet. And that, of course, is also what Kerning does here, uses the German alphabet. But then there's something else, too. Arabian Kabbalah is called Abjad, and what Abjad means is the first letters of the, of the alphabet, you know, starting with the left and bathe, Abjad. And Abjad, you see, Hebrew Kabbalah and Greek Kabbalah, and Kabbalah was originally Greek before it was Hebrew. You know, our Western Kabbalah has a mathematical analog. In other words, the letters have a mathematical, have a numerical uh, alternate. So our Kabbalah tends to be translated into numbers. And yet, Arabic Kabbalah, Abjad, is sonic. It's translated into, in, in, into sound. And so consequently, there are analogies, they're Kabbalistic analogies, they're gamatria, is uh, sonic and, and, and even musical. In fact, there are Sufi orders that use music instead of prayer and deliver their Kabbalah in, by music and also dance, you know, if you remember the whirling dervish. Okay, now back to, back to, uh, uh, to Mr. Kerning here, or Herr Kerning. To produce the highest effect, therefore, the letter forms of seeing, feeling, and hearing must work together. So what Christ says will come true. If ye have faith, ye may say unto this mountain, lean into the sea and it shall be done. But for such effect to occur, a word with the right strength must be given to us by the Creator. Such effectiveness is the essence of our art. The task 
may not be as great as displacing a mountain, but in a small way, its intervention into ordinary life will have already done much. With even the slightest amount of activity in this area, our wisdom will be a testimony to its lasting merit. Since I have spoken as thoroughly as possible about the meaning of true Kabbalah, let us now proceed to the matter at hand and present the original forms of the letter. The elementary doctrine breaks down into two parts, the forms of the vowels and the forms of the consonants. The vowels may be placed in the following order. I-E-A, U-U-O-A. I'm, I'm going to skip some of this because, number one, I don't, I don't read German, and number two, I'm not a musician. I don't, I don't read, I don't even read music. So their natural forms approximately follows. He has diagrams of this, and he has lip letters, tongue letters, palate letters, and uh, and we're doing this. You know, he's a voice teacher, and this is a wonderful. Uh, series of voice lessons and of course naturally has an influence on on vibrating the holy names yeah. now the 12th letter how should one practice let me read from that the outer man cannot reach immortality with only knowledge and activity for this it's necessary that in his innermost being and all the organs of his body, they be outside or inside, his eye be able to hear. When the soul and spirit become stuck in our flesh and blood and are unable to revive their freedom, they become buried in the earth. And then if dissolution comes, they are dissolved into atoms. Yet as soon as we free them from their imprisonment, and allow them to speak, they absorb the letter I into themselves, become masters and rulers of earthly life, and become one with them, and lead us to immortality and, and, and triumph. By the way, this is very Taoist, too. Uh, the Taoist Chinese believe that you should build a vehicle for the soul out of your body. And he has scales, and he does a lot with skills. I'd like to say at this point, you know, I'm virtually certain that Kerning must have uh, read and seen the, the works of Jacob Borm and Johann Kichtel. He would have to. So he must have known about the uh, about the Western Psychic Center system, chakra system. But uh, he certainly knew about P Pythagoras's uh, uh, music of the spheres, uh, you know, the monochord. I mean, I, he mentions that. He mentions the music of the spheres and he mentions Pythagoras. So he was aware of that, and very definitely Pythagorean. Let's get through here to, uh, through this pre-bound line we've shown the path we must follow. Now let's see what tools we can use to reach the destination we've made for ourselves. We stand before the entered apprentice pillar and seek to explore its contents. What does it contain is the first question. The natural answer, the apprentice word with vowels. How are they spoken? Just as one has been taught. Say the first letter and I will say the second. Who shall say the first letter? The teacher, the master, the spirit, God. Where is this spirit? In the fleeting essence of space. 
And what do you mean that spirit is the master and will tell the first letter? It is he and no other. How is this possible? Since he has neither bodily organs nor organs of speech, through our nose he must breathe this first letter into us, and then by sending the breath out again, we can speak the second letter, inhaling and exhaling, taking and returning is the general activity of the lungs and the heart and the organs of the life. God gives us the eye, and if we direct it towards speech and not by chance, we breathe the same back as A. And through this interaction, the inner life is awakened, fed by living divine nourishment, and we receive, in literal sense, a living soul breathed into our nostrils by God. We've now become alive through the power of the vowels, and we feel them rising through our feet and body to the head, but we're not yet master of their currents in so much as we cannot command them to cease. Therefore, we stand before the fellow craft filler and ask, what does it contain? The fellow craft filler contains the consonants of the language and the consonants let us examine. Yes, the consonants are again the answer. And how do you speak them? One learns to breathe through the lips, the tongue, and the palate, and in this way stamps the word makbanak as the true fellow craft word by activating and enlivening the lips, the tongue, and the palate. And what does the soul gain through the consonants? The consonants make incisions in the currents of the vowels, whereby life becomes individualized and more clearly felt. But how is it possible to breathe through the lips, the tongue, and the palate? Through the spiritual air penetrating everything, just as many have done, and everyone who isn't afraid of the exercise is able to do. Try it. Close your lips. Try to breathe in a clear M through them, and you'll soon find the feeling aroused that the lips will gradually spread through the skin over the body and make it capable of drawing God's breath everywhere. And when M and all the lip letters spread through the skin and over the whole body, so N and the tongue letters enliven the organs inside the body within the bones and the intestines thus raising them to speech. Let me mention something here. This uh, this proprioception of the letters is very important. It is as important as the visualization of the letters. And we have made great emphasis, of course, in the Church of the Medic Sciences, we've, we put great emphasis on visualization of the letters using Phoenician forms and, and all, but this visualization, uh, this um, internalizing uh, of, the, of the letters is vitally important. I'm going to go back to reading Kerning now. The palatial letters act in the, fir- in the farthest corner of each triangle as well as the center, not only in the body in general, but in each organ, both within and without. And through these means, the living soul is breathed into the speaker from height to depth, from depth to height, and from front to back, and from back to front, and finally, from one side to the other. Now, as Master Mason, he steps into the middle behind the cubic stone, gathers the materials he drew from the two pillars there, and combines vowels and consonants into words. And first as a force, second as a conceptual designation, wisdom and doctrine. 
and thirdly, as the richness and beauty of nature and nobler feelings of man. And in the second and third, the breath of God is essential and necessary in that we breathe in words and sentences instead of letters, and thereby bringing the soul animated by God to bearing the emancipation of feeling and hearing God's answer to questions we breathe in. This state is lofty and sublime, and whoever has succeeded in working through it can hardly imagine how it would be possible to live any other way. Now, in another work by Kerning, another work, by, not, this, not this particular one, another work by Kerning, he, he tells us that we breathe from great distances. We breathe from the stars. Now, she says over and over again here in the letters book that uh, talks about the breath of God into us. But in another book, he talks about he talks about breathing all the way from the stars. This, I believe, was the origin of the middle pillars bringing down the light from above. And this is where the Golden Dawn's middle pillar exercise differs. It differs from Eastern chakra systems. They bring everything in with uh, with the prana, with the breath. Well, so does so did so does Kerning, and so does the Golden Dawn. But uh, we breathe from the stars. We breathe all the way down from uh, down all the way around from heaven. It's the breath of God. And Kerning says it over and over again. And uh, so let's see. I think I've got a few more passages here we can read. This refers to what I just said. Distance isn't a consideration here either. If our thought touches upon a point either miles or only an inch away, the result will always be the same. The air, water, aether, earth, sky, and the deep are all full of the mouth of God. The mason, therefore, is bound to no space and no time. And that's like Hermes says, you can go everywhere in the universe by the speed of thought in an instant. Now, one of the most important letters, one which makes the others reach their highest effectiveness, is the letter H. And it is the inhaling, exhaling force, the ebb and flow of life. And, of course, that's that's right out of a Golden Dawn ritual, although Kurting wrote that before the Golden Dawn ritual, so that, that's where the Golden Dawn got it, probably. Now, the common man's breathing is thus perpetual inhaling of comfort, both through the nose and through the pores of the body. This keeps the good with him and repels the lesser good away from him. And it is it's not known to him. However, there is also an an opposite influx, and it becomes an unconscious act of chance for him. The perfect man must instead know what he does and how and where he breathes. That's Barton's, uh, that, that's Barton's forebreathing, for those of you who are into Barton. Okay. Now, some more on forebreathing. The application of such inhalation and exhalation is subject to some difficulties, and since most of the organs of our body are no longer capable of carrying out this activity, and even when it happens, we often don't notice. The usual breathing is done through the nose and sometimes through the mouth, and the 
opposite of this, in effect, the opposition of breathing through these orifices done through other organs we cover, for example, the pubic parts, though through practice one can acquire other opposites too. For example, the nose and the navel, the nose and the pit of the heart, or the nose and the pit of the neck, and later one gains the ability to breathe opposite the nose and the distinction through the toes, heels, bones, knees, thighs, and hooves, through the back and through the kidneys, the lungs and the liver and the back of the neck, and finally through the brain. Okay. Now, basically, um, that's basically the passages I had I had underlined to uh, uh, to share with you to give you an idea of the book. And in summary, let's say that this is a very, very, very important book, and I want to recommend to all of you who who are interested in this, that would, of course, include the Masons that are listening to me. This book is $19 on Amazon. And by the time you, you order the book and by the time you read it, I think we'll be ready to have another, another Hermetic Hour session on it. And we'll have our expert, uh, expert Masonic musician, Worshipful Maracruz Hamer, Oh, we'll be able to answer questions. And in fact, I think with that one, when, when Merrick gets on with this, so I think we'll have this as a call-in. And those of you who have bought the book can call in and ask us about it. Anyway, next week we'll delve into another very interesting book, The Baal Theory of Christianity, and that's by Glenn Young, self-published. and and this came out in uh, 2016, and we're just now getting around to it because, because like so many uh, self-published works, they, they sort of lie in limbo until somebody tells you about them. And so far, Glenn's book goes right along with our use of Phoenician. Uh, he's emphasizing child sacrifice, and we are trying to get away from that, and, and uh, so, so we'll be critical of that, too. Next week, it'll be uh, the Baal Theory of Christianity. Until then, be sure and get the letters of the royal art, and be sure and get that. Be ready to call us, you know, have it under your belt, and be ready to call us in when we review it again. And until next week, good magic.